You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. Good morning. I love to see the energy in the room, people having lots of connections and conversations, but we are going to get started with our third panel. I'd like to ask everybody to find their seats, if they might. Good morning. My name is Raj Kumar. I'm the president and editor-in-chief of DevX. I am delighted to be here on what is a very important occasion, I think, in this town and maybe in, in other capitals around the world where this topic deserves much more attention. Uh, I remember many years ago now, maybe almost 20 years ago, I tried to understand how the U.S. government organized its foreign assistance activities. I wrote a paper on it, and I counted 49 separate programs. Uh, that may be a little out of date. It may be, may be bigger now. Uh, the, this morning's conversation has been a lot about that complexity, right? Just how do we as the U.S. government get organized? But actually, we're going to make things even more complex right now because we're going to bring in the international perspective. How does this play around the world in particular contexts with other donor countries and with other non-state actors, with NGOs, with private sector? We think this is a critical component to any future state where we are really focused on preventing extremism. Now, in order to have a conversation like this uh, to be successful, it's important, I think, to take that complexity and first frame it. So at least for me, reading this report, which I think is a big contribution, I think the report is trying to, to change the narrative, especially here in Washington, but around the world, and, and in, in this way. I think the narrative has long been terrorism is a problem. We've got to go out and root out terrorism. And I think the, the narrative shift that this report is, is trying to make in this town is to say, Let's take the focus off of just terrorism itself, which is a symptom, and consider what is the environment that allows terrorism to grow and to breed. And once you do that, it changes your perspective quite a bit, because once you start to look at what is that environment, you actually start getting much closer to issues of, of justice and of governance and really of development. And so the people sitting next to me on the panel today are, by and large, people who work directly on development issues, wearing various hats but who have spent their careers working on those issues in many of the countries that we're here to talk about. So let me briefly introduce them and then we're gonna jump into our conversation. Ambassador Diane Corner, sitting right next to me, is the Counselor of Foreign and Security Policy at the British Embassy here in Washington, D.C. And Diane has spent her career across the Great Lakes region in Africa, most recently was the uh, deputy head for the mission in CAR. You've worked all over the world in many of the contexts that we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, sitting next to her, is Habib Mayar, who is the Deputy General Secretary of the G7 Plus, which is a great organization to have represented today because you represent really 20 of the most fragile countries in the world, countries like Haiti and Liberia and Timor-Leste where you're based. And before taking on this post, Habib ran aid coordination for the Afghan government. So he has seen some of these challenges up close in a very personal way that we're gonna get into in a moment. Ulrika Modier is sitting next to him, and Ulrika is the Assistant Secretary General at the UN and Director of UNDP's Bureau for External Relations and Advocacy, and has herself spent a long career working in many of the countries that we will be talking about today. And UNDP plays a big role uh, because, frankly, they can operate in a lot of the countries that today are very fragile and many organizations simply can't be there. Uh, next to her is Ambassador Martin de Hinden, who is the Swiss Ambassador to the United States. Before taking that role, you, you may have seen his name many times in the pages of DevX when he was the director of the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation um, and has, again, spent much of his career working very much on the issues we're talking about today. And then Sam Worthington, at the very end of the panel, Sam is well known in this town. Uh, he leads the largest uh, association of international non-governmental organizations in the world, I think 220 some members, uh, many of the, the big brand name nonprofits that you are very, very familiar with. Uh, so let me begin the conversation by asking Habib to start us off, because I'd like to go from Washington, where we've spent a lot of time and energy, and get to what you've seen on the ground. You spent time growing up in a refugee school, you've coordinated aid within your country of Afghanistan, and now you're thinking about these issues across many fragile states. Give us some grounding about how this looks from where you sit. 
thank you so much. First of all, I would like to congratulate USIP and uh, the respective task force. I think the recommendations of the report really speaks to the priorities that we have been advocating um, within the G7+. Plus. It's an intergovernmental organization of 20, as you mentioned, conflict-affected countries. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, start with the statement of the problems. Um, fragility and its associated problems are not the inherent features of these countries. Uh, actually, these countries are victim of terrorism, extremism, fragility. And most of these countries are, as you are aware, that are on the crossroad of some important geopolitical you know, uh, positions where some of these problems like you know, colonization, foreign aggression, and then civil war, uh, and then the resultant problems of you know, like extremism which um, uh, took their roots there as a breeding ground, they were exposed to these challenges which were not their own willingness. So the starting point is that we have to see these countries are tackling terrorism or fragility as a way of you know, helping these countries or building partnership with these countries to do that. Because that is a common problem, that is a common challenge. Everyone is you know, um, being the victim of terrorism and extremism. And these people have been, the, the people in these countries have been deprived of the very basic needs. And the basic needs you know, like which are provided in other countries are luxury for us. And then definitely when you grow up in such a deprivation or such a deprived you know, environment, you become habitually radical in your thoughts. Uh, you, know, you lack the school, you lack the basic services of health and education and everything. And you can imagine, as, as you rightly mentioned, I mean, millions of Afghan refugees, we, we grew up in schools where we were taught you know, with, with the primary school of uh, you know, mathematics with the pictures of bullets, you know, counting one bullet or two bullets or three bullets. So these are some of the challenges that we grew up. And then the second problem was the fragmentation that was imposed, you know, the international engagement in these countries in different ways. Humanitarians do their own things, peacekeepers do their own things without much coordination, and all of them are doing it in a compartmentalized way. And that's, that, that you know, exacerbates this fragmentation. And that's where the New Deal or the G7 Plus was then formed, and we endorsed the New Deal for Engagement in Fragile States. I don't know how many of you might have heard about it. It was the first international agreement or framework which recognized the nexus among all these factors, like you mentioned in the beginning, that we should, not, we should stay away from the compartmentalized way of tackling these issues. All these problems of you know, lack of security, justice, inclusive you know, um, uh, politics, and also economic uh, foundation in these countries have made these countries become a breeding ground for terrorism and extremism and then fragility. And then, but, but the challenge then was that when we endorsed the New Deal, the huge, you know, it was endorsed by more than 40 countries, mainly the OECD DAC, the civil society in the G7+, but then it, it, was, it, was, it remained just in the circle of technocrats. It did not take the political roots, you know, it didn't take the, the political buy-in from the donor countries. And I think, Habib, not to interrupt, but I think that is a key difference with at least the goal of this report. If you notice who the co-chairs are on the report, the institution that's leading it, the audience that it's focused on, it's trying to get that political buy-in right from the start, which is key to this. One, one quick follow-up question before we go on. I just, you, you, you made a very important point that being fragile is not a permanent state. But what would you say, thinking about those audiences, especially here on Capitol Hill, for example, what would you say to, to members of Congress who might say, but it seems to me that these countries are just in, a, in an endless cycle of violence and conflict and fragility, and we can't get out of this. What, what, what would be your response to that, to that skepticism? You know, our, our, one, of the, one of the biggest challenges is that we always, we, we rarely consider the potential of resilience that these countries have. And then we try to overcome or solve the problems which have taken decades to take roots, and we try to fix them with the quick fixes, with the very time-bound, projectized approach. Let's take the example of technical assistance. Annually, $15 billion have been spent in, in fragile countries just providing the technical assistance. Now, if you compare that to the public spending on higher education, it's huge amount. What higher education might attract is just a minor portion of that. Why? Because we assume that we can fix these problems within, you know, over, overnight, which cannot be done. 
So my response would be that first we have to look at the potential of resilience in these countries, and then we have to avoid or get rid of this time-bound, quick fix, impatient way of doing business in these countries. We have to develop, you know, with the development, with the, with the local leaders, with the local people, we have to develop locally, contextually sensitive approaches in these countries. And that would only be you know, possible when, once you involve with the local actors. And I think it was earlier mentioned that we have to be humble as an international community to listen to them. And one, one last point I would like to add to that is, usually countering the terrorism, we always look at the hard means. We don't consider you know, the softer ways of doing, you know, for example, dialogue and reconciliation. Um, in my countries, for example, first of all, if, you know, before 2000, I mean, 9-11, we could have avoided that if we had earlier engagement there. And secondly, once we got involved there, we could, there was great chances for peace and reconciliation. We could have solved that. We could have just engaged all the parties, and it would not have become that multifaceted. So I think we also have to look at the multi, you know, we, we have to adopt a multifaceted approach of solving these problems. Ulrika, you know, Habib has mentioned this division in the way we work. There's humanitarian and there's development. There's so much stovepiping and siloing. And I'm sure you experience this at UNDP, as do many of the international agencies, where the funding, your, your mission might be at a country level, but the funding comes with all of its own restrictions and requirements. Suddenly there's a humanitarian emergency. There's lots of money that floods in. But talking about a topic like prevention, Where's the funding for that? So how do you try to reconcile these things? And you've come in, in the past from the Swedish Development Agency yourself. How, how do you see us as a community organizing ourselves in a way that can actually prevent the extremism we want to prevent? Thank you. Yes, I was previously state secretary in the Swedish government, which actually led uh, also for a time uh, the initiative on the G7 uh, and the, the New Deal. And I think I just wanted also to say that one of the first and most important principles uh, are what you spoke about uh, uh, at the end, uh, namely uh, the importance of local ownership. And now working with the United Nations Development Program with presence in 170 countries all over the world, and of course many of these being these conflict-ridden countries with uh, huge programs in Iraq, in Yemen, and uh, many other countries, uh, we see the importance of being there, uh, working with local resilience in the midst of conflicts, uh, because we need to work in pair with the humanitarian colleagues within the UN system to see to that we uphold uh, local basic services, because then it will be much easier to rebuild onwards. But the reason also why I choose to come to the UN in these times is because that I believe that it's utterly important that we work together and find multilateral solutions to these local problems that also have, as you said initially, uh, many root causes that are, of course, within the countries, but also that are victims of, of uh, geopolitics that needs to be solved through multilateral solutions. And... I also believe that it's really important because of the values, values that we need to um, safeguard and develop. Uh, we were asked uh, in the, uh, from, from the audience in the previous panel uh, about whether we are pursuing Western values. Well, I think you have to look at the UN and see that the UN is actually the house where we create and recreate and safeguard uh, the values and also uh, the lessons learned. How do we invest the right way with regard to prevention? And UNDP did a very interesting report a couple of years back that some of you might have seen that was called Journeys to Violent Extremism, where we also interviewed individuals about their experience and what actually made them make the choice to go into violent extremism. And there you would find, as we all would know, many of, of the circumstances. Uh, lack of uh, hope for the future, of course, given uh, not enough of access to opportunities, uh, education, job, and so on. But also, 70% of these people, many of them being very young, had experienced also what they felt was injustice in relation to relatives or uh, close family or friends, and that was also what sparked them to move into the other side. It's a striking report. If you haven't seen it, it is worth reading because you actually hear from the voices of people themselves who are being radicalized about why they are. 
Uh, I just wonder for the local organizations that have been brought up now a couple of times, for them, and I, when I see them and talk to them, there is often this frustration about big international organizations like the ones that are represented here because of the fact that the funding is so siloed. Uh, one of the recommendations that comes out of this report that's maybe the most important and maybe the most significant action items is the idea that there would be a multilateral fund established that would really allow dedicated funds for this idea of prevention. T talk to us about the importance of that and whether you think there's real practical application for it in the world today. So I think it's very easy to argue that we need more coordination with regard to funding as well. I mean, we need to talk about aid and development efficiency. Uh, of course, local ownership is, is one of the most important principles, but of course, coordinating action will make it less costly as well and base those actions on the local experiences. Uh, UNDP being uh, one of the biggest development agencies of the world uh, has only 12% of core funding and that of course tells you that we don't have the possibility uh, to really plan strategically and act quickly even if we wanted to because we have so many of our donors that actually want to have their own projects uh, and their own way of, of uh, presenting uh, what they find is important. There are other ways of doing that, and that is to base our strategic plan and our actions on experience, experiences such as the one from the G7, which we have also coordinated with the UN, uh, and, and uh, do it in a different way. Uh, and of course, we need much more coordination. So I think that this recommendation of the report is, is really important. Ambassador de Hinden, can I ask you to come into the discussion because, again, you've had these two hats. You've run a major development agency in, in Switzerland, and now you're an ambassador here. Um, so much of what we're talking about today really connects to policy and politics, ultimately. So what is the environment like today for coming out and changing the way we actually work? We're hearing from a couple of people who are doing a lot of the work on the ground. We need to change. But it seems so challenging to actually get traction around changing the international system, even changing the way individual countries operate. How do you see it from your current perch? Uh, this is a double challenge. And we have heard it in both uh, contributions before that a lot of the fragility is linked to geostrategical uh, tensions. And this is a framework we should work on, and I'm very much convinced about multilateralism. I think for most uh, of those conflicts, it would be good to strengthen multilateral efforts in the United Nations, but could also be regionally, for instance, with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, for other parts. This is one element, but of course, this would not solve all uh, the difficulties we found uh, on the ground. Uh, you mentioned rightly that I was head of the Swiss uh, Development Corporation. So when, we, when I first time really uh, approached fragility, it was in the context of fighting against poverty. We have seen that in most of the places where we didn't progress in the fight of poverty, we had fragility. And this was also where also the places uh, where, where you have breeding ground for extremist movements, breeding ground for extremist movements, because not only of the poverty, but because people didn't have perspectives in their lives. And this is not the same. There's not a shortcut in between poverty and extremism. It's more about people feeling excluded and not having a perspective in his life. And so what I think there, what is important to do, is on one side to engage directly uh, with those people who feel excluded or are already on the path uh, of extremism, try to mediate, try uh, to have a dialogue with them. This is one element. And then the other element is, of course, to work on the environment, to uh, create job opportunities. This is a challenge uh, because it takes place in, uh, in an environment where success is not granted. I had very often uh, myself difficulties with uh, when I had to go to parliamentary commission to defend when things went wrong and when we spent money without having uh, the result. So it's important to address those issues 
and also to be less risk averse. If not, you would direct all the activities to the safer places where you have perhaps other opportunities to develop, for instance, private investment. Yeah, I want to get to risk aversion with Sam in a, in a moment, but you make an important point that poverty reduction and preventing extremism are not the same thing. They're, they're different agendas, but they are increasingly happening in the same places. Right? So as we get toward 2030, the countries that will remain in extreme poverty are largely the same countries, right? It's much the Sahel region, the Great Lakes region. We can kind of pinpoint where the problems will be. So maybe you, you need to have a separate fund, maybe you need to have a separate approach, but there is going to be quite a bit of convergence around the geography. Yes, and uh, I mean, if you look at the core elements, this is a lack of rule of law, violation of human rights, all those things that are not creating a sound fabric uh, for, for a good social and political uh, development. And so we need, uh, we need to be aware of, uh, aware of this. So Sam, I want to bring you in and, and think about the nonprofit organizations that, that work around the world, often in these contexts. You know, many times they're there because they have a mission to go where the, the greatest human need is, and no one else is able to go, and they go. Um, Oftentimes, U.S. government and other governments are risk-averse, and so they'd rather fund an international nonprofit than work directly with a government uh, when maybe there's issues of corruption or fear about that, at least. Part of what this report is talking about is, look, we need a, a more integrated approach that actually works more directly with governments, that works more directly with local actors. So where do you see the evolving international NGO kind of fitting into this picture today? So first, thanks for the report, and just uh, there, there are a couple of examples of civil society's role in creating some success stories, and I think there's been a lot of mention of civil society through this, and it's interesting that most of the conversation has been government actors, other actors in this mix. Um, and an international NGO has a unique role to play in that it is trusted largely in the West and is able to get some degree of local trust. Ideally, you need more local funding, more local engagement, and so forth, because it is only the local actors who will be able to change an environment. And there's a tendency of donors and NGOs to pass risk downward. Risk starts uh, with the government, you push it to the NGOs, take more risk in terms of this, down to the local actor and so forth. And that pushing risk downwards has a consequence. One is when you get into anti-terror rules, which are very well intentioned. You in essence have rules of who you could work with, not work with, and so forth. That pushes this concept of, of down to an environment of people not wanting to take the risk to work with the wrong actors. Um, there is a, a sense of uh, let's protect our own resources as they go, which unfortunately, and we're seeing a trend here, the general trend in many countries is a closing of civic space. It's exactly the opposite of what we want here. Rather than more civic actors having more say, able to uh, express the grievances of citizens, able to uh, imagine where a health clinic should go, to have some say over their future, civic actors are seen as independent of government and therefore risky. So uh, there is a tendency there to let's deal with what we can control, let's pull that together. And I find NGOs are caught between these two worlds, between the world of the local civic actor wanting some say and dignity over their own lives, and this desire for us to have change. But that change that we want, we want to have some control, some metrics over it. And I too, the two things don't neatly mesh together. Yeah, in some ways, when I talk to NGO leaders, the language they use is the same language that you would see in this report or that we're hearing today. But for them, they've been using it for so many years. They've been talking about community-level dialogue and, and the importance of things that feel soft in a, in a field, when we think about counterterrorism, that is a very hard field. But those soft things are actually really critical. So a lot of the expertise that was needed at a moment like this, if you buy what's in the report, is really the expertise that's inside the NGO community. And, and, and ultimately, and it comes down to what is the nature of your partnership with that local actor? Is it one of control? Is it one of trust? Is it one of building capacity? Uh, is it that you are independent? There, we've talked a lot about whole of government. 
a whole of society is much messier than a whole of government. And no organized government is going to organize a whole of society. You need spaces for voices to express themselves in different ways and tolerate those, which is inherently a political process. Uh, and that's where you start getting the peace building. That's where you start getting uh, discussions around good governance. And it's as slow. And I think that just the thing to end on here, we've talked about time frames. This is not three to five year project time frames. We're talking about generational engagement with actors across different societies, across different levels of societies, and then maybe measure short term. But if we try to solve this in short term measurable increments, I don't think we'll get there. Yeah, the very models of how we work might need to change. You know, we, we typically government funding, especially, is project oriented. The kind of work we're talking about, as you say, is not really project oriented. We're, we need a different time scale, a different set of metrics. I, I want to bring in uh, Ambassador Corner on this on this point because you've worked in many of these countries. I mentioned that in your introduction, but you, you were also ambassador in, in the DRC, um, and now at the, in the UK, there's been a focus on fragility for several years now. I think the target is something like half of all British foreign assistance should go to fragile and conflict-affected states. I'm not sure where the government is now on that target, whether it's achieved it or not, but I believe that's the stated goal. Um, so with fragility as such a core goal of the government's approach, how do you take the lessons of this report and the conversation that you're hearing so far today? Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much to Yusuf and to the task force uh, for this excellent report, which I think uh, contains a lot which is really thought-provoking, uh, and I think uh, uh, there's a lot in that with which we would agree. Uh, because um, the UK, too, as you say, does care very deeply uh, about stability, uh, about extremism, uh, and about fragile states. Uh, we're committed uh, to spending at least half of our bilateral aid programs in fragile states, uh, uh, and we think that there is a very clear correlation between uh, fragility and the growth of extremism. Um, in terms of, of how we address this, uh, some, of, some of what's in the report, uh, I suppose our, our experience in the UK may be of some value. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, so if I, if I share some of that. Um, so within the UK, within the, the British government, which of course is, is much smaller uh, and probably rather less complex than the US government, we have actually managed to set up cross-government working to address this, this issue. Uh, for about uh, 12 years now, we've had something called the Stabilization Unit, which has been at the, the heart of government, which cuts across um, the Foreign Office, DFID, our Department for International Development, and the Ministry of Defense. Uh, and that um, enables us to have a cross-government single version of the truth, if you like, uh, and provide an analysis of what's going on in a country, a conflict analysis, and how we should all work together uh, in going forward. Um, and I think this has been particularly valuable in helping to bring, you know, as we've seen this morning uh, in, in some of the discussions, all these different points of view. Um, the military can bring a huge amount to the table. Uh, they have their different actors, but they know a great deal about conflict. Uh, and they have a lot of very first-hand experience. Um, the development actors, development agencies, uh, work closely with NGOs. They understand uh, what can be delivered and how things can be delivered and how best to measure, how to be accountable to our electorates, because we, have, we do have those electorates and we do have to be accountable, as the ambassador was saying. And finally, you know, I would say that the, the diplomats, I, I mean, at the heart of this is a political solution. Uh, and I think the, the diplomats very often uh, can bring those insights into the political process because dealing with this is an incredibly complex issue and it has to be multifaceted as other speakers have brought out uh, and I think that we need to everybody brings something to the table uh, so it becomes you know it's it's, it's it's a crowded sphere but it's one in which um, it is right to have all those different points of view uh, and it's right to have coordination across uh, all those different actors. And I think that's one of the things that the report brings out and brings out really well. Um, I'd say also, you know, um, very important to coordinate between nations, between governments, uh, the countries that I've worked, I've worked in, DRC, Tanzania as well, uh, and also CAR, there has been very good donor coordination. Uh, sometimes it can feel a little bit heavy and a little bit of a drag, but what, what comes out of that is so much richer than, uh, you know, the, 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 
than, than, than if we worked uh, unilaterally. So, for example, there's the information sharing, there's the efficiency, there's the effectiveness, and there's the complementarity of donors getting together and to actually uh, help each other. And can I also just say that there is um, very much a strategic role for multilateral organizations in this. So the UN and its agencies, the World Bank, others as well. And I would say the reason for this is because they bring resources, and, and I'm not just talking about money, but resources that as a national actor you may not have. Um, secondly, um, you know, as national actors, sometimes you come with baggage. And that is not always good in terms of achieving the impact that you want. So sometimes it can be really useful to work through other agencies, uh, other multilateral actors. And finally, um, there's the question of legitimacy as well. And legitimacy, I think, is something which is subjective. You know, it's, it's, it's basically how you're seen by the audience that you're trying to, by, by those that you're trying to, to impact. Uh, and, and legitimacy isn't just, I think, some, some, it's not some vague concept. It actually means leverage and it means impact. Uh, and it means actually getting the results that you want. So I would say there is definitely an important role for multilateral actors uh, because of what they can bring to the table. In a way, it strengthens being multilateral strengthens the voice of the country, of the government, of the society. Instead of having many individual donor countries coming in with their own agenda, you say, well, we're, we're one coordinated agenda. But you know, I think there's obviously, as you know, a lot of backlash against the idea of multilateralism, right? And there's a lot of push to be able to take unilateral action in places where we think it, it makes sense from a foreign policy standpoint. I wonder how you would push back on the arguments of people who say, but you can't work with these governments. You can't just coordinate uh, with governments in fragile states. They're not equipped to do it. You need to come in from the outside. You can't trust them with uh, the funding for, for programming of this kind. Or in some cases, the government maybe is friendly, maybe you like to work with them, but their authority in the country doesn't, la doesn't go much past the, the palace walls, right? So how do you think about some of those realities and, and address the concerns of those kinds that you'll hear in, in parliaments and congresses around the world? This is for you and anyone on the panel who'd like to jump in. I think that's that's a really important question, uh, and it is very difficult. Uh, and certainly, you know, when I was working in CAR, Central African Republic, um, government legitimately elected, but very, very weak, very weak in terms of resources, in terms of manpower, in terms of capacity, in terms of just ability to get around the country and to deploy. So what I think you need to do is, is to build up a partnership, um, but definitely, uh, and it can be difficult, put them in front because they have to be, you know, you, you, you need a solution which is sustainable. You need a solution which is going to be there for the long term. It's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging. Uh, it's going to be uh, not straightforward. Sometimes it'll be three steps forward and two steps back. And one of the things I really like about this uh, report is that it stresses the need for an adaptive approach, that you're gonna have to try things out and see if they work and if they don't, uh, you know, then, then try something else. In a way, you have to experiment, but you've got to be prepared to accept risk and, and occasional failure as well, uh, because that's the only way you'll learn. There are so many different factors that can have an impact on success, uh, and uh, you know, you're, ha you're gonna have to work with all of those. It's very, very complex, the, the, the arena in which you're working. I think you wanted to jump in, Habib. Yeah, this is a very important uh, point that you raised. Uh, first of all, let, let's think this way. Uh, do we have any other alternative to the state or to the government? How long can the international community engage there if you do not work with the governments or if you do not work with the state institutions? Is it affordable to continue funding or delivering these services through um, any other alternative means like parallel institutions or NGOs, which are extremely, extremely expensive? So we don't have any other option. We have to find out the way. And then there is one element in the New Deal, which is called the Compact. And it has worked in so many countries, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, you know. It, it provides a platform where you can agree on joint benchmarks of delivering on the state building agenda. But what all we need is just to trust each other and to be, again, I would like to repeat that word, that the international community has to be humble to listen and to understand or to accept those priorities. Sometimes we take these concepts on the face value. And we do not dig into it. Or sometimes we copy you know, approaches from one place to the other places. And it's, it's an, acceptable, an accepted fact that you know, contexts are different. 
we have to we have to first of all assess or analyze what the context is again there's another element which we call fragility assessment in the new deal which means that you have to measure or assess the fragility across the five peace building and state building goals and then see where the country lies and different countries across you know the region they are in the different stages some countries have comparatively stronger institutions but then you know some other weak economy some of them are just like countries which have not had the luxury of having state institutions for decades and then obviously they are fragile but it doesn't mean that you have to avoid and you raise a very good point ambassador that you know if you have to put them in front the 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 tragedy with the aid system is that there is a kind of competition between the governments and the aid providers you know to establish that fragility or you know the, in other terms which is very common is when the hearts and minds of people which doesn't work so we have to accept that these are the state institutions which have to win the hearts and minds of people and i think in part because if they don't that's where extremist groups find a vacuum to, to enter and sometimes provide basic services themselves that government would otherwise provide yeah this is this is i mean this is very true in somalia in afghanistan in other parts of the of, of africa and one of the reasons that they have established the legitimacy because they are they're, they're providing services quicker than, you know, the government. And then the other tragedy, I mean, is that if you go to these countries, when you speak what the governments have done, or, you know, all you can see is on the projects is, you know, the donors, signboards from the people of XYZ country, and the government is missing. At least if you put it ceremonially on, on the lead, uh, people would see that the government is able or they are providing. And then it's not like one thing that, yes, corruption and all these cases are valid reasons or genuine, you know, concerns, but it's not as simple as we think. You know, aid is provided not as, you know, like just it's not a check that is given to a minister that, you know, he or she can spend. There are ways or there are mechanisms. Afghanistan is the biggest example again. It was totally dependent on aid. And, you know, we have had, you know, the budget spending by the donors and there was a, a mechanism of accountability and it has worked. And then corruption is, it, it, again, it's, it's not only just within the government systems. If you measure corruption in the aid which has been externally managed is much larger than that which was channeled through the government system. I think a lot of what you're saying there is very sensible and I see nodding heads on the panel. I do want to underline that uh, two of the things you're talking about are quite hard. You know, you're asking the, the richest, most powerful countries in the world to be humble against some of the poorest, least resource countries in the world. And you're also asking political leaders using taxpayer money to take more risk. I think we're, we've all been saying that on this panel and in, in prior panels as well, but I just want to underline how truly challenging those asks are. I think Ulrika wants to jump in. Let, let's hear from you and then Sam. No, I'm, and I was also nodding because I, I do believe that taxpayers or constituencies actually are wise enough if we have an honest conversation based on the decades of experiences what actually works and how we can get long-term, more sustainable results working with local ownership. And UNDP and the other UN agencies, but also the World Bank, if we talk about the multilateral institutions, many times lend our support and actually uh, we become the government function. I mean, Afghanistan is, is, I think, one critical example where I know that there is also criticism on behalf of the uh, Afghan government uh, in relation to the World Bank, not perhaps lending the support towards what actually needs to become local ownership at the end. But then, of course, this also depends on the shareholders of the World Bank or the uh, member states and the donors also within the UN system to actually... But we do have experience enough and, and evidence enough. And I also wanted to say that while I do think that we need to look for results, uh, of course, we need to see that there's a contradiction taking risk and planning for results. And there are, as also this report suggests, different ways of planning for results in an adaptive uh, manner and also then being able to report that. And just uh, last, I, I think that we should also look towards the international frameworks that we have, G7 framework being one of them, but also, of course, the goal 16 of the Sustainable Development Goals internationally um, negotiated. It was the toughest goal to get uh, because it contains... Governance goal. On governance, on rule of law, but also how to build peace uh, in a, a way that sustains peace. But it is there, and I think it is a false assumption to actually believe that 
the, there are Western donor countries that want this, while it wouldn't be wished, even though we see a shrinking space in many countries, we see as many actors actually understand the importance of rule of law and governance in order to, to build sustainable and, and prosperous societies. So I'm gonna to go to Sam, but um, we're about to go to questions as soon as we hear briefly from Sam, so please get your questions ready. So I think I'll, as the NGO person, I'll bring in the private sector a little bit here because I think we have to play to the strengths of all actors. There need to be resources to local government, to central government, to the capacity of a, a state to uh, govern and organize itself. There need to be resources uh, through civil society, with civil society, for civil society to have a voice uh, and to express voices of people. And then the private sector as a generator of jobs, uh, how do you generate those jobs and how do you bring in that capital? And we've had an interesting conversation with the US NGOs uh, and uh, institutions bringing in risk capital into fragile environments, is how can one facilitate or accelerate that capital coming into these environments or foreign direct investment? And is there a role that foundations, uh, NGOs could play, or that uh, large donors can play in mitigating risk of bringing in capital to these environments? So I think we have to look at all the different players, the different strengths they bring together, and that is the complexity of what we're looking at here. There is not a government solution to this or just a business solution or civil society. You need all these actors together playing to their strengths. And our challenge is, is then as donors, as people in different environments, is again, back to, I like your point, do we have the humility to recognize ultimately that the solution is local on all three of these points? Yeah, in some ways the current model is the riskiest model we could have, right? Where donors have to say, we understand the problem, we design the solution, we go and execute and implement it. In some ways that's actually a lot riskier than finding new modalities to just mitigate some risk and allow private players to operate, operate there. I see a couple hands already. I think there's, are there microphones to go around? I think they are coming. Yes? Maybe not. Yep. Uh, oh, they're, they're, it's coming. It's coming to you or do, or do you want people to line up? Okay, it's on. Microphone is on its way to, I think, the fourth row. Yeah, there, we'll, we'll start. Yeah, we'll start right here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Homera Khan from Muflihun. Uh, this report actually recommends starting a new partnership development fund, multilateral, and yet we know that one already exists. And in the previous panel, um, Alina Romanowski actually mentioned it: the Global Community Engagement and Resilience Fund, and UK is one of the donors into it. It's a foundation, and Switzerland is one of the very generous donors into it. So I guess I'm asking, would you recommend actually starting for something which several of the governments have been investing in for the past five years? Do you ditch it and start something new? Um, is there something which you would want to adjust it, restructure it, or what would actually make that, this new thing potentially succeed if the idea is that the existing prevention efforts are not working? That's a great question, Humera. I was going to take a few at a time, but that's such a good one. Let's, let's actually dig into it for a moment if we can. And maybe I can go to you, Ambassador Martina. Martin, if you could give us a sense of uh, why that particular fund has not taken off in the way maybe we had hoped it would. I think that was part of the conversation in the last panel. And whether or not it makes sense to really launch something new or try to use something that exists today. So I'm, I don't share, the, the fund didn't take off as we expected. But uh, what we could see from the projects that are run is that they produced uh, the results uh, we wanted. And it's perhaps rather a, a political hesitation why it could not be widened more uh, than, uh, than, it, uh, than it is actually. And I still think it's the, it, it, it's a right approach, and the approach is very similar to what is proposed in the report here. Any other thoughts about that from this from the from the panel, either about the existing fund or how we can make a fund? There seemed to be a lot of earlier consensus that we need a fund of this kind. So what do we have to do to actually get to the point where it might exist? Go ahead, Ulrika. No, I was just saying there are more uh, funds as well. You have the Peace Building Fund of, of the UN, and, and of course UNDP would be one of the agencies where we work, and you have the World Bank uh, here also in the previous. So there are several existing funds, uh, and I do think it is a good to see and perhaps do a mapping of these kind of initiatives. We would know that it's easier to start up something than to close it down, but of course if there could be some coordination, uh, and I think that there is also uh, 
between these different funds uh, we could perhaps improve. But then, of course, the political initiative is important. Uh, so that's many times also the reason why we start up new initiatives and, and maybe it's a matter of packaging and how to make something out of what we already have to showcase that there are countries really taking this seriously in the challenging times that we have. May, may I have another remark? I mean, we are dealing here uh, with something where we cannot have template solutions. We need to be aware of this. And rightly, the report points out that analysis is extremely important. When working in, uh, in, in fragile uh, contexts. And so what I think is, to, if further uh, funds should be developed, the existing experience should be analyzed. And one should be really aware of that you cannot have something one size fits all. So we are not there. And this is a difference, for instance, to traditional development cooperation, where you know how to run a vaccination program. It's something completely different. So getting, getting to this point, yes, there is not a template of implementation that we all agree on. So there's that challenge right there. This report is interesting, and the idea of a fund is interesting, because it really is, in also many ways, addressed to the United States. How do we look at prevention differently? How, does, how do the different actors here get organized around an idea of prevention? How does Congress invest in it and so forth? And that's where I think this point that this need to be political space to create a new fund. And then that new fund, should it be created, needs to look at other experiences out there to move on. But there is this political dimension uh, and practical dimension of how do we shift uh, uh, under the leadership of USIP and its ideas coming into this the, the concept of where prevention fits into what has been more traditional U.S. approaches. And I think that's the shift that needs to happen. You're right, getting that political support from the U.S. is the key. And maybe there could be a fund of funds where some of these are, are coming under, as you, would, as you see in the finance world. Go ahead, Ambassador Corner. Right, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, there are already a number of funds in this area, but you know, and we, we have our own bilateral fund as well. I mean, the UK has a conflict stability and security fund. That's $1.7 billion a year. Um, but, you know, so I think we're well used to working together. And I think one of the, the strong messages from um, this report is actually about building partnerships. Um, and, and so I think, I think the coordination will flow. We're, we're sort of fairly good at that these days. Um, but I think, you know, if it helps to bring more actors in, if it helps to, um, uh, you know, sort of to, to drive that, that buy-in, if you like, then, then it's, it can only be for the good. Well, especially if it can help us to get that long-term funding that doesn't just work on a political cycle or an emergency cycle, but that you can count on, given that the efforts we're talking about are very long-range and maybe, maybe relatively small in dollar amounts, but our long range. Just, just to jump in and put a plug in for the Global Fragility Act, because this is where Congress comes in. This comes with a frame to act on this and the importance of the alignment of Congress with the administration and making this something that is legislated and not a one-off activity. And that's where I think the, that we may see the political momentum, at least in the U.S. context, uh, to shift some of the thinking that will be influenced by this report. Good point. I think we have a few more questions. We'll take two or three at a time. There's one in the very back, and then I saw one up here, I thought. Maybe, yes? <laughs> if you have one, go ahead. Uh, hi, Just give uh, us your, your name and organization. Eric, Eric Rosen with the Prevention Project in Brookings. Um, uh, on GSURF, as someone who was involved in helping set it up, I think it uh, lends itself very nicely to everything that was described in the report, and I would just echo Humera's questions and uh, which were, seemed to be more rhetorical than actual questions. Um, but I think the larger issue is, and I, some of the panelists have alluded to it, is this um, desire for always something new and um, the desire to uh, essentially to reinvent the wheel. And it's not just in terms of the funds that exist out there, including GSURF, but it, it's also all the different sort of youth-focused programs that have been stood up in different contexts, all kind of around dealing with fragility, all kind of around dealing with prevention, multiple donors funding in the same space, single donors funding in the same space through multiple funding streams in that donor capital, and a reluctance to actually uh, change behavior, um, even when there's a, 
sort of a high political imperative to do so. So my question is, um, why is this different? Why is this report going to produce the kind of structural behavioral changes among, not among local actors, not among host governments, but among donors that no previous reports, whether it's the World Bank, whether it's the UN, whether it's OECD, have, whether it's the United States, European Union, have been able to do. What is different about this report, if anything? Thanks for that question, great question. Again, I think there's one here, go ahead, please. I already asked two questions, give someone else opportunity. Okay, is there, is there another question? If not, then I can ask. I think you're on. Okay. Uh, this, uh, I'm Sufi Lagari with the Sindhi Foundation. Some NGOs are not, uh, extremist organization is a different scenario, but uh, organization like Jaisi Mohammed, uh, Masoud Azhar, who's extremist uh, and most wanted man, and, but always China veto in United Nations. I don't know how this panel response or what can be US or UN or other uh, steps can take it to prevent the uh, extremism and terrorism person like uh, Masoud Azhar. And that is, I think, is totally state-sponsored by uh, some country. Uh, China is also trying to uh, prevent, you know, simply. Okay, thank you. Was there one more question? This is your chance. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with these two. And maybe we can start with Eric's first, um, because it really is a, a pointed question. And, and essentially why, what he's asking is, you know, if I can even expand his question a little bit, we've been talking in the panel already that the international architecture isn't really fit for purpose. We, there's urgency, we understand the number of terrorist incidents have grown, the number of members of terrorist groups have grown, there are many countries facing fra fragility challenges, there's lots of money being spent in a way, but the organization of it isn't quite right. So why now are we gonna actually shift? If we're not fit for purpose to this point, what will, what will make us actually move? I'll, I'll dive in first. Um, this report is a continuation of a conversation that will keep on happening and repeating itself and the challenge that we need, we're looking for sort of short-term immediate solutions because it's an imperative to have that with an inherently long-term complex uh, problem in front of us. And as learning happens along the way, there are, we need to focus often on, time, on areas that require more attention. And the focus on prevention as a reminder that this is ultimately going to work better through a focus on prevention if you want to mitigate uh, the, the problem, uh, I think that is a value added at this point in time of the conversation. That doesn't mean that five years from now, 10 years from now, may not be another report on prevention to do this because we tend to run towards where there's the quick uh, need to act, uh, but not on how do we take the, the long-term view of uh, trying to take on some of these challenges that are gonna be difficult to address. So I think the report is very timely because uh, I'm concerned that we see actually a downward trend uh, with regard to uh, quality of, of aid or international development cooperation with more of fragmentation, even though we actually should know much more. All the studies over the decades have taught us that we need to do it differently. So I think it's a very good reminder uh, to member states of the UN, but also the donor countries, that uh, we need to work uh, differently and that we do have the experience on how to do it. Um, yeah, Eric pointed out some examples where there, are, there is more fragmentation, new yeah. youth programs being, being stood up. Uh, there are political imperatives for doing that in many donor capitals around the world, but as you say, yeah. we know better at this point. We know better, and I also think that the, the taxpayers or the constituencies, as I said before, they would actually want us to work more efficiently and not in a fragmented way, um, putting up different flags if that is not really getting us the results that the investment should get. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I think, you know, um, Extremism is changing all the time, uh, and our um, knowledge of, of what works and how best to respond to it is also changing and evolving. And, and I think we have to see this as, as, you know, this report as part of that discussion about how best do we respond to it. And I think it's, um, you know, it's got a huge amount of value 
uh, because of that, because it is, it's looking at the problem in 2019. Uh, it's looking at it with all the lessons that we've learned about what works, what hasn't worked so well, and how best do we address it, and how best do we bring all the actors on board. Uh, so I think it, it, it definitely fulfills a, 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 an important space uh, in, in, this, in this discussion. Go ahead, Habib. Um, I think, I mean, let, let's just introduce some sense of optimism here. Um, we're optimistic about it uh, because um, we think that it's a great report and the recommendations are reflective of what I mentioned, the New Deal. So for us, it's very, you know, it's very good. And I hope that, you know, um, it will change the policy discourse here in the United States, which will definitely, you know, get a lot of followers on the international community. And the second point that I also want to mention regarding the implementation of the recommendations, you know, we, we, we have this term, the left behind. The, our countries, not only the people, but even our countries are left behind uh, on, on the global discourse when it comes to addressing fragility. And I think this, the, the, the New Deal and also the G7 Plus with, together with the International Dialogue is a good, good platform to bring the voices of these countries. We were always at the receiving end. And you know, when you are in the receiving end, you don't have much say to add. But I think this has changed that shift. And we have offered this uh, already, I mean, uh, based on our conversation, that we will be happy to bring those experiences from the countries. And speaking of humbleness, I mean, there is always ways to learn from our, from our experiences, you know. Uh, yes, we are, we are called fragile, but we know, we have, we, have, we, have, we have lived in fragility, and we might bring a better perspective. So I think in, in terms of recommendation, it would be great to uh, create that kind of you know, platform where there's a dialogue. And one last point on the, the trust fund or the, the funding mechanism. Uh, we also have been advocating for you know, um, creating a global trust fund for private sector development in these countries. Because private sector is always, you know, they, they are scared, they don't go to these countries. But if we create that kind of funding where you, know, you can pool the, the, the money and you know, where you can bring the willing investors to go and invest in these countries, I think that can also be a big part of the prevention agenda because you know, it will create jobs, it will create livelihoods, and people have better alternatives to live there. Thank you. And Ambassador Hinden, I wonder if you could, in part, as you address the question, also for address the, the question from our colleague at the, the Sindhi Foundation. You know, the geopolitics around this is complicated. There are violent extremist groups that are out there that may be supported by state sponsors. And it becomes very complicated at the UN or at other multilateral fora to address those. How do you see that challenge, as well as the broader uh, debate here as we, as we close up our session? Of course, uh, we cannot break everything down on the project and the program level in uh, countries that are affected by fragility. And as I mentioned before, I see uh, a strong role in multilateral institutions like the United Nations to address those issues. I mean, I, mean, I know this is, uh, quite, uh, this is quite difficult. National interests of different countries uh, are involved. Uh, but uh, I think in the multilateral framework, uh, it's the only place where we can create a common uh, definition of the problem, a common uh, perception, and then, of course, also common approaches. I believe in this, even so, it has failed many times and will continue to fail. Yes, it's, it's almost like the Churchillian quote about democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. What else can we do but continue to try to work through multilateral fora? I do hope that as you leave the session today, uh, you, you take away a couple of things. One is there is a lot of urgency around this topic. Now, we very quickly get into technocratic issues about how to organize ourselves, rightly so. Those are, that's where a lot of the action is. But we shouldn't forget the urgency uh, that that the world is shifting very quickly. The facts are changing on the ground. And I think this report, I hope, brings very clear and makes that point very clearly, especially to the US Congress, to our executive branch, that we have to take action now. Um, whether it is using existing mechanisms or standing up new ones, something different has to be done today uh, if we want to change the trajectory of the future. The report, I think, is worth reading. If you haven't had a, a read, of it, it's worth doing that. But I think almost more important is the narrative that it is pushing out that we can all adopt and take forward. The idea that there has been a real shift. We, we, many people I, I talk to about development still use terms like the third world. Right? That was a mental model that took decades to get over. And now people still talk about developed countries and developing countries. We are in a different time. 
The world is much more complex than that. And I think this idea that we don't combat terrorism by combating terrorists, we focus on the environments, we focus on the countries, we focus on much broader challenges uh, in key geographies around the world. If we can change that mental model, which I think this report really does a great job of putting a case out there to do it, uh, we can really make real progress. So I want to congratulate the U.S. Institute of Peace, Nancy Lindbergh, your whole team, all the task force members who created the report, and thank all of you for being part of this today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.